All right, well, you made it this morning, so thank you for coming here and being here this morning. Uh, I'm Cameron Bundy, the pastor of adults here uh, at Cross Creek Church and excited to, uh, to be bringing the word. And so Craig's out of town. He's in New York City visiting his daughter. And so uh, they're getting some well-needed time there with some family, and uh, he'll be back next week. And so he put me in the, in the seat this week and said, can you bring the word? And I said, I, I mean, I would love to. I would love to be here. Uh, it's my favorite thing to step up here and to say, okay, hey, let's bring God's word and see what he has for us. And so, hey, you know the drill. Get your Bibles out. Turn to Acts chapter 6. If you don't have one, uh, there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. If you don't need a Bible and you just use your device, that's more than welcome. You could do that as well. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to ask you, uh, I want to I give you the statement and see if you agree with this statement. Uh, that with some type of growth, there comes some type of pain. That with some type of growth, as we're growing, there usually comes packaged with it some type of pain. Now think about it for a second. When you're thinking about moving through a season of growth, right, whether it be spiritual growth or maybe it's mental health growth or physical growth or, or whatever that looks like. Maybe you're leading a business into a new season or you're leading your team somewhere. Typically when you're growing, uh, there's some type of challenge sacrifice, uh, uh, something that you go through, an obstacle, right, that would then bring some pain in order to see the fruit of the growth that you're wanting to see. And uh, when I was thinking about this, I was like, oh man, I was recently listening to a podcast with this girl, uh, Sally McRae, who's actually an ultra marathon runner, mountain runner. Uh, if any of you are runners in here, that's, in, that's insane. I mean, you're talking like 50 plus miles. I mean, this girl trains hard. And she was talking about all the grueling exercises she goes through, the, the extreme discipline she puts her body through, and, uh, and just how to move through that season of growth, there was some pain that came with it, right? And she talked about the races and how there'd be blisters on her feet and, and how she would then go through these times where she's like, well, I want to eat this, but I really need to eat this because this is better for my diet. And she had to make these sacrifices in order to see growth in her life. And then she had to maintain being a mother to two and a wife to a husband. And on top of all those things that she's trying to do, she's like, man, it's just a painful experience. But the growth that she saw out of it was worth it. That as she pushed through the barriers and the obstacles, that all of that pain was worth it in the end. Now, I relate to this, okay? So back before the, the new year, because I didn't want to be one of those New Year resolution people, I made a New Year's resolution before the New Year's came because I didn't want to fall in that category. Anybody in the house like that? Anybody like that? Nope. Okay. Maybe it's just me, right? I was just trying to get out of that category. And I said, hey, you know, what I want to do is I want to train for a half marathon and November. And so I've been training for it. I've been building up for it. I've been cutting out some things in my diet, losing weight and trying to do all these things. And I related to her story, That as I'm growing, as I'm trying to pursue this goal for this run, there's certain things I had to sacrifice, certain things that I had to go through. I mean, just physical exhaustion, y'all. I mean, there's some mornings at 5 in the morning when I'm sitting in my kitchen chair and I'm like, I don't know if this is worth it. Like, I'm ready to just give up. Like, there's no way. It's like 26 degrees outside. I barely got the gear to get it done anyway. So let's just call it quits. And, you know, every time I push through it, I go, okay, my priority is is that I set this goal and I want to achieve it. And if I'm going to achieve this goal, then i got to push through the pain in order to see the growth. And so when I began to think through that, I was like, man, this is is so relatable for all of us. And I began to think back to this book I was reading about this church leadership guy. And he wrote this equation that I thought was just marvelous. It's very simple. uh, To explain this idea, the connection between growth 
and pain. He says this, Samuel Chan says this. He says that growth equals change, change equals loss, therefore loss equals pain, and growth equals pain. So in order to grow, you have to change. And when you change, you have to lose something, right? There's some kind of sacrifice you make. And then when you lose something, it causes some type of pain in your life in order to then see that growth. So therefore, growth equals pain. But isn't that so opposite of what we think of in our world today? That when we see growth, everything should just be flowers and it should be just nice and easy. And it's not like that. If you've gone through any type of growth, you realize that it takes some type of pain, right? No matter what, pain is inevitable, right? It's going to come to us. And in order to push through the pain to see the growth, right, we have to go through these obstacles and these challenges in order to really see the fruit of the labor. Now, why am I saying this? Because I want you to begin to think about what is that pain in your life? That when you were growing as an individual, you were growing a business or growing an organization or helping your children develop, right? When you're towing that hard line with your children, you're like, is it worth it? The pain that you experience as a parent. I want you to begin to feel that. I want you to begin to bring that to the surface because what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a church that was growing, that was expanding. Salvations were happening. Baptisms were happening. I mean, you, you could, I mean, this was the best church you could ever see. I mean, this was, I mean, it was on the rise. Group multiplication was happening. I mean, it was just busting at the seams and you would think that they wouldn't experience pain. But yet as they grew, there was these growing pains that came. And so we're going to look at this community in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. And so if you're there, say word. All right, beautiful, you're with me. I love it. All right, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to begin reading here, and this is the word of God. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Now let's stop right there because I got to catch you up on the story, right? We've been rolling through the book of Acts and, and this church, right, is on the move. The Holy Spirit has come. He's empowering the people of God to accomplish the mission of God. Everything's moving forward. Peter's preaching at Pentecost and 3,000 people are saved and, and baptized and they're brought into the community and they're, and they're going to the synagogue and they're, they're, they're going to these large group uh, worship services in the synagogue and then they're going back home, right, and practicing it in, in their home groups and living it out in and accountability and in community with one another. The scriptures say that they ate together, that they did life together, that they shared resources among each other, they prayed for each other. These people were on fire. You could feel it in the air. I mean, it was so palpable. It was so energetic as the Spirit of God was moving among His people and, and nothing could stop this church. There was nothing. Persecution came. And guess what they did? They didn't say, God, take this persecution from us. No, he, no, they didn't. They said, God, would you help us endure through the persecution? Could you imagine being a part of a movement like that? Where it's just like, God, I know this persecution is so hard, but you know what? Instead of taking it away, uh, what we really want is just boldness to endure through the pain. Did I mention that they were a growing church? So all the while, while they're growing, you think it'd just be all flowers and this easy walk, but yet here's all these growing pains that come along. And so there's this, this area of persecution. There's this area of compromise in the church that they see. And none of these things were stopping the church. They didn't be kept throwing all these things at the church, trying to see if he could stop this movement, and throw up their plan and, and see if they can, get, they can prevent them from going any further. And then he says, you know what? I got it. 
if it ain't persecution, if it isn't compromise, then I'll get them with a distraction. I'll get them with a distraction. But if there's one thing that we see throughout this whole time that we've been going through the book of Acts is that the early church is marked with unity. It was marked with unity. And so despite the persecution, despite the compromise, and what we're going to see here is this distraction, right? And this complaint is being brought before the apostles. And this complaint was coming from the Hellenistic Jews. They're saying, hey, our widows are not being taken care of. And so they bring this to the Hebraic Jews and the apostles have to handle the situation. So they bring this complaint and there's this tension in the room, but this tension was nothing new, right? This tension had been lurking in the background for some time because if you know anything about the Hebraic Jews versus the Hellenistic Jews, there's already this tension between the two groups. That the Hebraic Jews were very uh, traditional, right? They lived right outside of Jerusalem in this larger community. The Hellenistic Jews were scattered throughout the land and they began to adopt the Gentile language and the Gentile culture. And so to these Hebraic Jews, these Hellenists were kind of outsiders, right? They were the, you don't want to be a part of them. You know, we don't want anything to do with them. So it would make sense as we see this complaint coming that the Hellenistic uh, widows were, were really being you know, taken advantage of, that they weren't getting their resources. And even as you think about it, as they're scattered throughout all the land, it'd be really hard to get the resources there versus the Hebraic Jews who are all living together in this big community, sharing the resources among themselves. So they bring this complaint. And let me just stop right here. Because this right here is a prime opportunity where the enemy can cause a turf war within the body of Christ. Here you have these Hellenistic Jews and these, and these Hebraic Jews who have come to know Jesus that are within this believing body saying, hey, there's something going on here, but this really honestly is beyond just the problem. There's actually this cultural difference, this tension in the room. And they could have made this personal issue, this big issue into something well, a lot bigger than what it could have been. And the enemy's dropping this in the middle of the room to make this turf war in the middle of the church. He still does the same thing today, church. He's still doing the same thing. He is so crafty in what he does because he takes something so subtle like a disagreement or a personal preference and he drops it in the middle of the church and then it just sparks this fire and it engulfs. And it distracts the church from its original mission, from its original purpose. See, it could be anything. It could be a cultural difference. It could be political differences. It could be disagreements. It could be secondary tertiary issues. I mean, he will just drop this in the middle of the room and just watch churches explode. And this is happening all around the world. Churches are closing their doors because they can't come together and lock arms with each other. And they can't make their hands useful for service because they're all bent out of shape because there's a problem in the community. And so they make it personal. You know, when I thought of this, I thought of rocks. You know, sometimes we come to a fight, right? And we come bearing the thing that we're, we're so twisted up about. Hey, the widows are being taken advantage of. What are you going to do about it? You Hebraic Jews? And they come bringing their rocks and they're, and they're complaining and, and all of these things are happening. And, 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 and it makes it so hard for the church to move forward when your hands are full of rocks. Right? It could be cultural differences. It could be political biases. It could be Trump versus Biden. It could be Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. Am I hitting home? It could be the Chiefs are going to win it out. Or the Eagles. 
right? Okay, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just getting a little real here, right? And we bring our rocks and these differences and we're ready to just launch them at each other. And we forget that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's what the early church does. You ready? The early church does this. They go, you know what? The mission is more important than my personal difference or preference or opinion. So I'm going to set this aside and say, I'm going to live for the mission. And that's what we're going to see in this passage, is that they set their rocks aside. And what they do is they make their hands useful for service. Because here's the deal, church, is if your, rock, if your hands are full of rocks, how are you going to make your hands useful for service? How are you going to lock arms with somebody when you got rocks in your hands and you're about to lunge them at each other? That's really hard. So you got to set them aside and say, you know what? The mission's more important than my own personal beef. You get what I'm saying? And so here's the main idea I want us to get to this morning is this, is that the main idea is unity is fostered through service. That unity is fostered through service. That when God's people pull together to, to band arms together, to lay aside the rocks and make their hands useful in service, that the mission moves forward and the church is unified in that mission. Think about it. Think about any disaster that hits a community. What happens? You think about tornadoes that hit our town. You think about hurricanes that happen here and around the world. You think about recently right now with the earthquake that's going on or that happened in Syria and Turkey. What do people do? They take their differences and they say, you know what? It's more important to serve than to actually win my argument or get my way. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go, you know what? I was Democratic or I was Republican. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to set this down because guess what? The mission is more important than my own opinion about how politics play out or about getting my preference. And so I'm going to lay those things aside. I'm going to bond arms with my brothers and sisters and I'm going to make my hands useful in service. Unity is fostered through service. And it's really difficult to serve when your hands are full of complaints, when your hands are full of these differences that you can't get over. And so the early church figured this out. They, they practiced a discipline of self-forgetfulness so that when this thing came up, it didn't take anybody by surprise. They, they locked arms, they got their hands, and they made themselves useful. God uses this, right, as a means to forward his mission, to move his church forward into the community and see more people one to Christ because his people are unified. They're moving together with one heart, one soul, one mind. Could you imagine that every church in the world did this? That instead of getting caught up so much in the rocks, getting so caught up in the, the differences and the preferences and, and all these things, all these different things that divide and say, I'm going to set this aside because you know what? In Christ, we are one. And Jesus, there's one body. And we're going to move forward and we're going to accomplish this mission because I'm going to forget these things and keep my eyes on the prize. Let's keep reading Acts chapter 2. Y'all with me this morning? All right, let's go. Chapter, or, or verse 2, the 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples and said it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word to, uh, of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, uh, select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. Right, so here we're going to begin to see the church really begin to live out this unity, that they're going to they're foster this unity in service. And the first thing that you see them doing is they, they acknowledge the problem, right? They acknowledge the problem. 
So this complaint comes and they say, hey, we're not going to write this off as insignificant or, or make this a personal cultural issue. No, they're going to say, hey, we're going to acknowledge this problem because it's real. Right? It's not just something that we could just skirt off underneath the carpet, but we're going to address this problem. Right? And they're going to work together as a community to find a workable solution. And so what do they do? They call the church together and they say, hey, look, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and try to see if we can select some men to help fulfill this need. Now, I just want to stop here and say this real quick, is that I, the point here that I'm trying to show you is that it, this didn't take God by surprise. Right? This problem that, that arose in, in the community of believers did not take God by some kind of surprise. God was fully aware this problem was coming. And here's what happens in the church is that often when problems start coming up, in our personal lives or in Cross Creek Church, we all begin to scatter. We're all like, oh, oh, does God even know? Yeah, he does. Right? And I just, I'm reminded of Jesus, right? And when he's asleep in the boat and the disciples are freaking out and there's a storm going. And they're like, Master, do you even care? Well, yes, he does. But are you paying attention to seeing what God's trying to do in that moment? Right? And so I just think in our own lives, right, even in our own church sometimes, we think start going sideways like, whoa, and this doesn't take God by surprise. And this should comfort us. That God sees it, that he knows it, that he's working. He's saying, hey, I'm already at work. Would you just come alongside what I'm trying to do at this very moment? Do you see him? And see, church, we can move forward as a church in unity. We can move forward as bold individuals, bold community, because why? Well, Paul says this to his uh, young disciple Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7. says, uh, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Do you hear that? That we have a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, in a sound mind. So when we move forward as a church, it's not like, oh, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what we're going to do here. We got this problem and, and we acknowledge it's there, but what do we do with it? Well, he's given us the Holy Spirit to help us discern what to do with it. And so we don't have to get squirmish. I mean, we can confidently move forward and make our hands useful in service so we can lock arms. Because why? Because unity is fostered through service. When we make our hands useful, God uses that as a means to advance his mission. So let's get, keep reading in verse 3 through 6. Brothers and sisters, select from among yourself seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parnamis, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch, and they have them stand before the apostles who prayed and land, laid hands uh, on them. So here we have, they didn't just acknowledge the need, but now they're beginning to address the need that was being surfaced through the problem. Right, so here we are, now we got this problem, we see what it is, now we're going we're gonna to address it. So we need to elect seven men to fill this role. Why? Because you see them saying, hey, we can't waste our times waiting on tables. Now some of you are going, whoa, hold up. Are these guys prideful? What's going on here? Well, waiting on tables here is not this idea of what you think of when you go to dinner, right? When you're, when you're going to dinner and someone's waiting on a table for you. This idea of waiting on a table is administration. 
right, where, where money would be exchanged, where, where uh, resources would be given. And so they're saying, hey, we don't have time to really deal with the administration part because our job is to be part of communicating God's word and praying for the saints and equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And so they say, hey, we need help. We have this predicament. And so what we need to do is we need to find men in the church to be able to help serve these widows. And so that's what they do. Then they begin to choose and select for themselves these seven men. Notice that it's they choose, they, they select. They didn't just randomly pick these guys out of the blue, right? This word choose or select here is actually the same word that's used when Jesus selected his 12 disciples. So think about that for a second, that as, as they're choosing from the crowd, this is not just a random pick, but they're actually picking strategic people to help fulfill the need that has been presented through the problem. And so they get these men. And what's really interesting here is if you dive in and look at each name here, when you look at, uh, when you look at Philip and Nicanor and Timon and Barnabas and Nicholas, all of these names are actually Greek in their root. And they actually have a Greek background. So what's interesting is that they, they actually are picking guys who are strategic in the Gentile culture. That these are just not some random guys going out, but they would actually fit into the culture as they are giving resources to the widows. And here's what we see is that God has the power to bring the right people at the right time and the right place to accomplish the mission of God and to fulfill the need that is needed. He, he brings them and then he empowers them for that very thing. And here's what I'm going to say, churches. This, this is where a lot of churches fall apart, right? Because we get so twisted up over, oh, there's this problem and, and we're, we're all going to get divided over it. But what this church does is they pull together and they say, hey, look, we're going to pull our resources together. We're going to find people to help fill those roles. But here's what happens today is that many churches, they back off the pedal and they go, you know what, this is not really that big of a deal. We'll just brush it under the carpet or you know what, it, it just, we'll just move on from it. And I was reading on Charles Swindoll's commentary in this part, and he talks about the four roots or the four ruts of a successful church, the four dangerous ruts of a successful church. Because this church was growing, they had every right just to go and sweep it under the carpet and just keep moving forward. And Charles Swindoll said this, he said, here's the four dangerous ruts of success. He says, they lose sight of their purpose. They began to be vague in their priorities. The members believe that the staff are paid professionals. Oh, hello. Uh, number four, the, the staff downplays the, the, the significance of the individuals in the church and the gifts that they bring to the table. And so as, we're, as, the, as the church is moving, this, this is not what they do, right? This is not what they do here. They go, hey, you know what? Uh, Yes, we have apostles that are in charge. Yes, we have people who have gifts. And so what we're going to do is we're going to maintain our priority. And then we're going to bring along these other people who are gifted to then serve in those roles. They didn't fall into the trap of a successful church. Church, we're growing. We're moving. We're a part of something big here. But man, I just want to warn you that we don't fall into one of these ruts. That we lose our purpose. That we become vague in what we do in our priorities that we begin to think that it's all the staff's responsibility to then serve, and so then I just kick back in my chair and relax. Or we downplay your, your significance that you bring to the, to, the, to the play. And let me just tell you this, is that there is no such thing as a second string, third string players in the church. All of you are first string. We all are pulling together and locking arms and serving to make this 
thing happen because that's the vision God gave to the church. Ephesians 4, Paul talks about that God created one body through Jesus, who is the head of the church. That God had also gifted the church leaders who then lead the people, they equip the people, the saints for the work of the ministry and to move towards maturity in Christ. And then listen to this close. This is what Paul says, chapter 4, verse 15 through 16. He says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Did you catch that? That we are a body of Christ. We are to be uh, bond together. We are to serve together to build one, or one another up in love. And so we can't afford to fall into one of those dangerous ruts to think that it's all the staff's responsibility or that you're insignificant and you don't bring things to the table because it takes all of us to work together properly to help see the church move forward. See, unity is fostered through service. And when we bring our gifts and talents to the table, God uses them by his supernatural power to accomplish his purposes in his church. Amen? All right. And so let's keep reading Acts, chapter, or Acts verse 7. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Right, so we've acknowledged the problem, we've addressed the, addressed the need, and now they're advancing the mission forward. Right, Luke is giving us his progress report. He says, look, since you're moved forward in unity, since you are making your, your hands useful in service, look what God's doing. Look what he's doing. People are coming to Christ. Disciples are being trained. We're winning influence in the priesthood, in the synagogues. The influence, the reach of the church is moving forward. Why? Because they decided to lock arms and say, hey, you know what? The mission of God is more of a priority than my own preference or my own uh, decision and, and my own political bias or my cultural differences. We're saying, hey, we are one in Christ. So we're going to move forward and we're going to accomplish what he has set in front of us. See, when we serve together in the power of the Holy Spirit, we use our gifts. There's nothing that can prevail against the church. That as we're working together, we're bringing everything we have at the table. We say, hey, look, we're going to lay it all down. We're going to lock arms. We're going to make our hands useful for service. God uses that through his supernatural power to advance his church, to advance the mission of his people. We all play an important role here. And Paul says in Romans 12, 9 through 13, to outdo one another in showing honor. Right? Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and to show hospitality. We are all called to this. There's not one of us that can say that we're not called because if you're in Christ, you are called. He has a call in your life. We're, we're all contributors here. Even though we live in a culture that just raves about being a consumer, and I love being a consumer, baby. Okay, I love me a good old steak. I love me a good old movie. But by golly, when it comes to the mission of God, I want to be a contributor. Why? Because of what he's done in my life and what he's done in your life that we contribute to the mission of the God. What's holding you back from serving today? What's holding you back from getting involved? Church, we're a serving church. I'll be completely honest. I mean, we're a very generous and serving church. And I, I am not going to even just act like that's not even a thing. But here's what I worry about. Here's what keeps me up sometimes is that as we grow, as we get bigger and God's doing all these amazing things that one by one by one, we begin to think, okay, I can back off the gas pedal. 
because someone already has that. Someone's already doing it, and so they don't need my gift anymore. We need you. God needs you. The kingdom of God needs you. And so what, are, what part are you playing in helping serve in the kingdom of God? Is what's holding you back? Is it busyness, apathy, plain laziness, insecurity? I give all these because, honestly, they're all excuses I've come up in my own life. Let's just be honest here, right? And I call them excuses. Why? Because it, basically our priorities are out of whack. Because every single one of those is focused on self and not on God. And so I have to realign my priorities. Go, okay, what does God say? What is, what is his view of the church? Church? And begin to live that out in my life instead of what I think about the church and how do I view the church and how do I feel in the moment. I just don't feel like serving. Well, hey, guess what? God calls you and he's empowering you to do it. And so we have to answer that call. And so I want to ask you today, what is holding you back from serving? Because today you can actually visit our website, crosscreekchurch.com forward slash volunteer. And you can see all the opportunities, right, of how you can serve within the church and volunteer out in the community through one of our Love Local Partners. You can go on there today and click on the link and you fill out the form and you can get involved. And man, I challenge you to do that. And here's why, because I want to wrap up the part of this message by, by really focusing on this one piece. Because honestly, we could talk about serving and, and being involved in the mission of God. But here's what's more important, and I say this all the time in our membership class, is that I can connect you to a group. I can connect you by being a member of this church. I can connect you through a connect group and serving. But if you do not connect with Jesus through salvation, then you're missing the whole thing. Because there's a lot of people in this world who are serving, but have no hope of Jesus. And they're just serving, trying to fulfill this purpose in their life, trying to fill this hole of their life. And, and, and what Jesus says is, hey, you serve out of the overflow of what I've done for you. The Bible says that Jesus came not to, be, not to serve, but to, to serve, right? To, not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve, right? And so when we think about that, we think, okay, wow, Jesus came and he didn't come to, to be served, but to serve. Why? To give his life for a ransom for many. And you may be thinking, okay, I've never even heard this, but what does this even mean? Is that while we were still sinners, that while we were going our own way, doing our own thing, running away from God, wanting nothing to do with God, that Jesus came down from heaven to earth and he lived a life, a perfect sinless life. He endured the same pain, the same suffering that we do today. Why? That he may go to the cross and that he would be hung up there for our sins, to die in our place, that our sin would be placed on his back that we then could walk away and say, hey, you know what? I put my hope and trust in Jesus and now I can return to the Father through Jesus Christ. That he gives us eternal life through him. And so I want to come back to this idea of, of our rock illustration from earlier. Because here's the deal. Is I hear this all the time. I, I want Jesus, but... I really have this addiction that I just, I don't want to let go of it. I, I want Jesus, but I just don't know if I can forgive that. I don't know. I, this, this feels good right here. I'm, I'm going to keep it right here. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, come as you are. Bring your rocks before him. Right, to bring this before him. And he says, look, I will take those from you. That bitterness, the unforgiveness, the addiction, 
whatever that is in your life, he says, look, you can bring that and you lay those right at my feet. So what are you holding? What are you bearing that has been keeping you from just even coming to know Jesus personally as Lord and Savior? Because look, I can ask you to sign up and serve today, but here's, here's hear my heart because this ain't a gimmick. My heart is that you know Jesus personally. That's all I want from you today. I want you to know him personally. And if you know him personally, then here's, my, here's your next step is I want you to get involved because the mission is more important than our own selfish desires. So would you bow your heads with me? So what I want to do right now is I want to give the opportunity to that, that person in the room that walked in here today and said, you know what? I really don't know Jesus. I'm still checking him out. I don't know if I'm ready to really hand over what I'm dealing with in my life, whether that, that, that be that sin in my life that I've been hanging on for some time. And, and I want to give you the opportunity to, to say yes to Jesus, right? To give you that opportunity to say, okay, I'm ready to give my life over to you. And so what I want to do real quick is I want to lead you through a prayer to surrender over whatever that sin may be in your life, whether it be that addiction, that, the bitterness, the, the root of pride in your life that you've just been trying to shake loose and I, I want to I help you walk through to give that over to him and to, to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If that's you this morning, then right where you're at, I just want you to just pray this prayer with me. It's nothing magical. This is just saying, God, I, I want to give my, my life to you. And so just pray this with me this morning if you're ready to give your life to Jesus. Father, I acknowledge that there is sin in my life that's holding me back. I am a sinner. And I am totally and utterly in need of you. Jesus. And so I come before you and I lay this sin at your feet and I choose to walk in your forgiveness because I believe that you are Lord and that you died and you rose from the grave to give me life. And so Jesus, you are master of my life and I give my life to you today. And now I'm going to walk in that freedom praise in Jesus' name. Amen.